John. And we'll read through verses 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's a Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Amen. So um, during the pandemic, I got into uh, baking cookies uh, when there was like a shortage of flours. So I looked up a recipe on a Bon Appetit uh, website, and it called for uh, brown butter. And then you would slice up regular butter, put it in there. You would mix your dry ingredients together. You would get egg yolks and egg whites, put them all together in a mash. You'd form this gooey thing. You'd take a scoop, you put it onto a pan, and then you let it sit for 8 to 10 minutes. And then this ball that had gone in would kind of spread out gradually over the 8 to 10 minutes. The edges would get nice and crispy. The inside would still be a little bit soft. The granules of sugar had half dissolved, so it had formed one unified whole, but there was still like a little crunch of every sugar cube, so when you bit into it, there was a... And this was like the best cookie I had ever made, and for like a couple times that I made it, it was excellent. And so I was like, oh, I got it. (laughs) I'm very good at this. But the last couple times I made this cookie, I put it into the ball, I followed all the exact same steps, I put it into the oven, and when it came out, it was still like in this ball shape. It had not spread out, it had not gone anywhere, there was no texture, there was no contrast, it was exactly the same kind of blob that had gone in, and it was not delicious at all. And I could not uh, figure this out. I did the exact same thing that I had done every single time, but the result was completely different. And this is a frustrating thing about life. Sometimes we do the exact same thing in the exact same context, we feel like, and the result is not the same. So you can come home after your first uh, quarter of school and you get a B plus in English. You walk into your kitchen, the light is still streaming in through the windows. Your parents are laughing and talking with each other. And you go, Mom, Dad, I got a B plus in English. And they go, oh, don't worry about it. Come sit down, have some ice cream. And you go, oh, this is great. Next quarter... You walk into the room, it's winter time, there's no light coming through, there's no lights on, mom is just sitting there like this, and you go, I got a B plus again, but it's not going to matter. They they were so happy last time. 
Mom, Dad, I got a B plus. Can I have some ice cream? Ice cream? What are you talking about? And in your mind, you're like, I got the same grade. I did the same exact thing. Why is the result so different? And that's what we're confronting here. Between John 5 and John 4, there's all these different parallels. And it looks like Jesus is kind of doing the exact same thing. So what are some of these parallels? First, there's a focus on water. John 4, they are by the well. Here, they're by a huge pool that's about a football field big. And there's a water theme that's going throughout it. The pool Bethesda actually means house of mercy or flowing water. In both stories, Jesus is trying to find somebody to talk to. In John 4, he finds a Samaritan woman and he talks with her. Here, he finds somebody who had been an invalid for 38 years and he makes sure to focus and talk with them. In both stories, he gives them a gift. John 4, he pours out living water into this woman's life. Here, he even heals this man who had been lying there for 38 years and now he's suddenly able to get up and walk and we would expect that the result would be the exact same. In John 4, the woman was overwhelmed with joy and worshipped in spirit and in truth. But when we look at what happens in John chapter 5, none of that stuff ends up happening. We know that the man who was healed miraculously does not end up worshipping Jesus, but later on turns him in to the religious authorities and he ends up being persecuted. In John chapter 4, the people from the town of Sychar believed the woman and they had faith in Jesus and they started to worship him in spirit and in truth. In this story, in John chapter 5, we find out that the religious authorities were hostile to Jesus and when they saw the man walking around, they were more upset about Sabbath breaking than they were concerned about the man and his previous condition. So why is this difference? Jesus seems to be doing the exact same thing, but we get these completely different results. And as we think about this question, I think one thing that happens immediately is we burst apart this commonplace misconception that a lot of us have. So I teach at a Christian school and you can see people's faith journeys from young age up until high school and even among some of the teachers. And one of the common things that people in high school ultimately say is, I have a hard time with my faith. And then you try to figure out why is it so hard to believe in this thing that we believed in for so long? And they say, well, I can't see Jesus. I can't experience Jesus. I don't know where he is when I pray. Is he in space? Is he in my heart? Where is he? And they say to themselves, if I could just talk to him, or if I could just experience a miracle, then that would change everything. Then all of a sudden, I could know him and my life would be transformed. But this chapter says that's not true. This man talked with Jesus face to face. He experienced a miraculous healing, but the end result is not what we would have expected. It's not that all of a sudden he turned and his heart was changed and the entire town was transformed. Instead, it revealed this deeper problem that they all had and they were not even able to overcome it. And so what is Jesus trying to teach us with this story? It's not ultimately about this miracle that happens to this man, but Jesus is pointing to something even deeper, even more powerful than a miraculous healing. He's trying to show us something more profound. And that's what we're going to look at today. So before we get there, let's pray. Uh, God, we just thank you so much for giving us this time to be in your presence. And it is so hard to concentrate and be in your presence because there's so many other things that are going on in our mind. But we know that deep, deep down in our hearts, we long for you. We need you. All this other stuff that we're searching for or longing for or think is going to fill us ultimately will not do that. So what we ask is that your spirit would fall in a powerful way, clear out that space in our heart 
so that we can see you standing in front of us, offering us grace, offering us joy, offering us living water. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. When we look at the man who's at the center of this passage, the way that John introduces him, we ultimately see that there's something a little bit off about him. John 4 is about living water. In verse 1, we're told that this is a feast. We're told that they're by a pool overflowing with water. This is supposed to be a time of celebration, just like in the new year. We're supposed to celebrate. We're only into February, but a lot of us probably feel like we're dry already, that we're like, oh my gosh, I just can't believe we're already just only one month into it. And this man is exactly the same. It says that there are people who are blind, people who are lame, and people who are paralyzed. But when you look at the word paralyzed, it doesn't capture what's going on with this man. The word literally means he was withered. He was dried up. So this man is in a place of overflowing water. He's in a place where he should be festive, a place where everything should be great, but his heart is dry and even his body is dry. And as Jesus starts to talk with him, you notice that there's something else that's wrong. In John 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, there's 13 lines of dialogue going back and forth that touch upon the most profound subjects, race, the temple, patriarchal history, worshiping in spirit and in truth. And in this one, Jesus gives the simplest question you could possibly give. And this is something I do as I teach too. If I give a test that's too hard, I make it easier and easier and easier. And this is the simplest test that could be given. Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? And the answer should be, yes, I want to be healed. It could not get any simpler than that. But what does the man end up saying? In verse 7, you see that the man says the following, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going in, another steps down before me. He's given the simplest question, the greatest opportunity anybody's ever been given. Do you want to be healed? All he has to say is yes. And instead, what does he do? He blames his situation on other people and he looks for his hope somewhere else. At this time, they believed an angel would come and stir up the waters of Bethesda and the first person inside would end up being healed. Now, he'd been invalid for 38 years, so we don't know how long he was lying here, but over and over again, he'd be waiting for something to happen the water would be stirred. He tried to get in. But he says, nobody is helping me. And when I try to get in, somebody else just cuts me off and I'm not able to get into the waters. And that is the reason I'm here. Jesus never asked him about any of that. He just simply asked, do you want to be healed? Yes or no? From a distance, we can mock this person for saying, I can't believe he messed up such a simple question. But when we think about ourselves, we know that we are this man. There's so many things in our life that are so obviously, <laughs> no, no offense, I mean, but all of us, there's something in our life that's wrong with all of us, and we know what that is so easily and so simply, and the steps to get better are not that hard to do. We need to get healthier, our finances need to be better, our mental health needs to be better, but when someone else is like, hey, I think you got a problem here. We're like, oh, how dare you say that to me, right? Oh, if I had a different family, then this wouldn't be the situation. If I had a different job, then this, blah, 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 blah. If my kids would listen to me, then I think I could do this other thing. But the situation here is that we know exactly the step that we need to take. If you're struggling in school, you study. If you're struggling in your finances, you create a monthly budget. If you're struggling with your health, you diet and you exercise. We know the exact next step that we need to take. But in our mind, what we've done It started making our situation worse by instead of owning it, we blame the people around us 
and then we start looking for these quasi-lottery type miracle solutions. Oh, if I could just win the lottery. Oh, if just something happened to my boss and they suddenly got replaced. Oh, if uh, school suddenly became free. Or oh, if they just canceled college debt, then all my problems would be solved. This type of thinking shows that the man is not just withered in his body, but that has metastasized into his brain. And the way that he sees the world is now completely skewed. He cannot see himself as he is. He cannot see his own true problem. When a simple question is asked, do you want to be healed, yes or no, all he can do is complain and talk about why his life is the way that it is. And instead of taking any blame for himself, he blames all the people around him. If it was just for somebody else in my life that could help me, then all of my problems would be gone. This man cannot see the world as it is, and he's caught in this trap. And so he can no longer see the salvation that's standing right in front of him. So who's standing in front of him? Obviously, we know who it is. It's Jesus. But in verse 13, when he's questioned about this, he has no idea who it was. And it kind of implies that when Jesus is talking to him, asking him this easy question, the guy doesn't even look up. He just kind of keeps staring out into the pool, doesn't look at him at all, just kind of keeps on complaining about his life. Well, my life stinks if I had better people, blah, 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 blah never even ends up looking up at Jesus, and he does not give the right answer at all. But what does Jesus do? Even though this guy completely failed the easiest test in history, Jesus heals him immediately. But just like in John chapter 4, Jesus is not interested in just solving the obvious surface-level problem of his body. He comes back in verse 13 and circles back to the man and says, See, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse might happen to you. He's not content with this guy just walking around and being like, wow, my life is great. He knows that this guy has a deeper problem than his body. And here we have to be very, very careful. You cannot create too close of a connection between sin and sickness. We can't do it for ourselves and we cannot do it for other people. If you think this way too often, you'll end up looking at all the bad things that happen in your life and going, oh, it's probably because I missed my quiet time seven weeks ago that this awful thing happened. Or, oh, it's probably because I cheated a little bit on my taxes that I, that has nothing to do with anything. Don't uh, cheat on your taxes. But that has nothing to do with anything as far as these kind of superstitious results go. But we know that Jesus wants us to be careful about this type of connection because a couple chapters later in John 9, the disciples asked, there's a blind man over there and he was blind from birth. Who sinned? this man or his parents. And Jesus said, neither of them sinned. This has nothing to do with sin. But in this case, for this man, it's clear that somehow what he was like in his body was connected to what he was like in his heart. And this is a general principle that's true. Sin has an effect. We have to be careful about judging people. We have to be careful about judging ourselves. But we cannot deny that sin has an effect on the way that we live. There's this uh, story by Philip Yancey who wrote uh, What's So Amazing About Grace and he talks about his friend who reached out to him uh, to have dinner. So they go out to dinner and Yancey can tell this guy has this question for him that he's been wanting to ask. And in the middle of dinner, all of a sudden the guy says, look, I know you read the Bible and I have a question for you. He goes, okay, what's your question? He goes, I'm thinking of having an affair. I want to leave my wife and the question I have for you is will God forgive me if I do it? And then he's like, oh my gosh. So he 
like didn't know what to say because he knew if he said like God will forgive you that's exactly what this guy was looking for some kind of get out of jail free card so he said he sat there drank like three cups of coffee before he even opened his mouth and he said look you know the Bible as well as anybody else of course God will forgive you but after you go through this process the thing that happens to you is your heart changes it becomes hard you don't want to look at God anymore and at the end of this process you probably won't even be in a situation where you even want to ask for his forgiveness in the first place. Sin has an effect. Is there forgiveness? Of course there's forgiveness. But it draws us away from God. It alienates us from people. And all of a sudden we're trapped in this mind world where everybody is against us. God is against us. And that is the power of sin. And that's where this man was stuck. Yancey says a couple years later he ran into this guy again. And this guy now is starting to talk about his ex-marriage as this unhappy thing and how this woman set him free, how all of his Christian friends were judgmental and not happy for him. And he asked him, do you go to church? Do you think about God anymore? He goes, no, maybe later. And he was exactly right. Will God forgive you if you go through these sins? Of course, but sin has an effect. It hardens your heart. It changes the way that you see the world. And that's exactly where this man was. Jesus heals him anyway and says, you will be healed, sin no more, or something worse that will happen to you. And right when you hear that, you would think, based off of John chapter 4, this man's life was about to turn around. He was going to say, yes, you are right. You know exactly what's wrong with my life. I will follow you. But what does he do? Instead of following Jesus, he tattletales on Jesus. And he says, Pharisees, this is the man who told me to pick up his mat. And from that point onwards, he was being persecuted. So this person who experienced this miraculous healing ended up foreshadowing Judas in terms of betraying Christ. And this is not the result that you would expect after somebody does something miraculous. But this result also carries over to the people within the town. In verse 1, we're told that Jesus in Jerusalem, and by this time, Jerusalem had turned against Jesus because he had a different approach to the law and he had a different approach to God. And so he is there secretively, withdrawing into the crowd, not making his presence known. And we can see that the people in the town, once they see the miracle, do not worship in spirit and in truth, but instead they say, why are you picking up this mat? And they turn against Jesus. This man had been miraculously healed after 38 years of lying there, and instead of being happy, instead of celebrating, they blow the whistle, 15-yard penalty, excessive celebration, and they're like, wait a minute, didn't you see what just happened? This guy did the most amazing thing. He goes, don't pick up that mat. You're not allowed to do that. And why are they all of a sudden getting such a cold response? The reason we find out is all of these things ended up happening on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath for Jewish people is the most holiest of days. It starts at Friday evening, goes until Saturday evening. And in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a sign that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day, he rested. So when God first gave the, the Israelites the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, this was the rationale that was provided. Keep the Sabbath day holy because God rested on the Sabbath day. So the Jews in John chapter 5 were not wrong. The Sabbath should have been a day of rest. In Jeremiah, it says, do not pick up a burden. When you look through the other prophets, it says that they shut down the gates because people were too busy doing business, paying attention to money, paying attention to their jobs, rather than focusing on loving God and resting in God. But something strange happened by the time you get to Jesus' day. The idea that God is resting turned into the idea that God is not active in the world. 
and the only people that are left are ourselves. And the only way we can pursue righteousness is on our own efforts. And all of a sudden, God's rest had transformed into this law that you also cannot do anything. And in a twisted way, a day that should have been spent in rest was now about how much effort you had to expend not doing any work. In high school, I went to a Catholic school, and uh, it was a very strange experience because they would take communion every Friday, and I would go up and I would take communion and like have a good time, and then my mom was like, don't do that. <laughs> I was like, oh, why not? She's like, you're Protestant. I was like, I am? And then she's like, yes. I was like, like why would you send me to a Catholic school? And she goes, well, because um, of your education. I was like, oh, you should have told me that before I ate so much bread. So I was there, but um, I used to play in this band. And um, so, you know, we would have band practice. So because it was like that, it was the only kind of private school in the area, a lot of non-Catholic people went there. And one of the guys who went there was this Jewish guy who was our guitar player. And so every Friday, I mean, if it was strange for me, it was, must have been super strange for him. So every Friday we would go to each other's houses and play guitar, play guitar, play guitar, practice, practice, practice. One Friday we end up at my Jewish friend's house, and then uh, he's like, hey, why don't you guys stay for uh, Sabbath dinner? So like, okay, great. So his dad comes into the door, and his dad was like the town dentist, and he used to like make fun of us all the time, right? And then when he found out we were staying for dinner, he started smiling, and he was very happy. And the reason was because the drummer for our band was an Egyptian, right? So he's like, oh, this will be fun. So we sat down, and then when we started going through the Sabbath meal, all of the prayers talk about how God had freed Israel from (laughs) Egypt. (laughs) And every time the word Egypt came up, my friend's dad would look at him and be like, you know what you did? (laughs) And then he'd start eating. And by the time we got to the end of the meal, he basically was just singing, let my people go. (laughs) And then he would just look at him, right? Where did this idea come from? Exodus 20, Sabbath is about rest, creation and rest. By the time you get to Deuteronomy, a new idea is introduced. You keep the Sabbath, not just because God rested, because once you were a slave in Egypt and God with his mighty hand and outstretched arm has delivered you. This shows that Sabbath is not about not doing something, but it's about resting in the work that God has already done for you. God has finished his work of creation, but he is still doing his work of redemption. And there is a huge difference between resting as not doing something and resting as restoration. And the difference is this. Sometimes when you're on the subway, you'll see a guy and you'll feel sorry for him because you can tell he's exhausted. He, like this. And he's sleeping on the subway. Now, technically, he is asleep, but he is in the context of craziness. He is on his way from one place to another. He has to be vigilant. He has to wake up. Oh, is this my stuff? Is this my stuff? Is someone grabbing my stuff? No. Is he resting? Yes. Is it restful? No. You're better off going home, cooking, preparing a meal, laughing with your kids, crawling into your couch, covering yourselves with blanket, and watching TV together as a family. Did you actually sleep in the second scenario? No. But is it more restorative? Yes. And this is the type of rest that Jesus is talking about. Sabbath is not about not doing something. It's about embracing something. And that embrace is embracing what God has already done for us. If you check in verse 17, this is what Jesus says to end this passage. He says, My Father is working until now, and I also am working. The reason he healed, the reason this man should get up and walk, the reason that they should celebrate, of course God wants us to rest, but not rest by expending our effort 
but rest by resting in all that he's accomplished for us. Every week we gather together and there is a struggle to break away from the cycle of busyness. Oh, I got to think about what's going on this week. I got to think about where to eat. I got to think about the groceries. I got to think about the delivery. I didn't meal plan for Wednesday, so I got to figure out what's going on there. But every single week, Jesus stands here in this place and asks us a simple question. Do you want to be healed? And instead of saying yes, we go, oh, I'm so busy. And if I was just, just like this man. But every week he goes, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Next week I'll ask you again, right? This man answered the wrong way. He turned against Jesus. The Pharisees started persecuting Jesus. But Jesus go, that's it. I'm never coming back to Jerusalem again. If you guys treat me like this, I will never, ever do this. No. He's like, God is working and I am working. You appreciate it. You don't appreciate it. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I have to do. Every week, he will come here and say, hey, guys, do you want to be healed? You all know that thing in your life that you said, God, if you could help me with this, my life would be so different. And he's saying, hey, do you want to be healed? And we go, oh, well, I don't know. I just... Hey, if you're not ready, next week he'll come back. Hey, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Over and over again. The message here is not, wow, look at this great miracle. The message here is God is working when we don't notice it, when we don't appreciate it, when people are hostile about it, when nobody seems to understand exactly what's going on. And so that's the encouragement for today. God is at work. So what should we do? Number one, some of us are in this place and we need healing. And instead of asking God for it, we're like blaming people or we're stuck in this mindset like, I got to figure this out on my own. He's here. Do you want to be healed? Ask God for healing. The second thing is God is at work and now he's inviting us to join in that work. And I know you might be like, oh gosh, it's so busy. I'm so busy. But remember, this is a restorative work. You see people healed. You see God pouring out living water. You see people worship in spirit and in truth. And in that labor, you find true rest. Let's pray. Uh, yeah, let's start here. We'll give, we have some time. Um, do you want to be healed? And oh, healed from what you know. And we all know um, this relationship is going through a difficult time. My relationship with my kids is very difficult. Trying to figure out my future is very hard. We all know that thing. And instead of being stuck in this cycle of busyness and thinking about ourselves and thinking about who else is to blame, let's just stop and look at Jesus. He's standing here. He's been here every single week. He's been here even before that problem arose and says, hey, I'm here. Do you want healing? So if there's something in your life that you want God's help for, say, God, this is the thing. Um, I've looked in all these different places, but I should have come to you first. Can you help me? Let's pray like that for a little bit. And then after we pray like that, look at your life. God is at work. And we have not noticed it. He has loved you. He has protected you. He's watched over you. The relationships that you have abused because of your anger and your impatience, he has sustained. So that when you see your kid after you blew up at them, they smile at you and they're happy. That's not because 
we are such good parents is because God is sustaining that relationship. God is at work. So let's just take a little bit of time, let the blinders fall away, see God standing before us, and then we can respond with some worship.